You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Have you ever felt the, the tension of <clears throat> needing to wait on God for something uh, and yet wondering, what is my role in that waiting? Right? Like, what do I do as a part of this waiting and trusting process? Is it a uh, let go and let God thing, or is it more of a God helps those who help themselves? Right? Like, how does this whole thing work? Now, I have felt that tension a number of times in my life. I'm sure that you have as well. Uh, just two examples that I can think of. Um, <clears throat> I had just graduated seminary, and I was trying to figure out what the next step, the next stage of my life was going to hold. And uh, I was trying to figure out, was I going to move up to Omaha, Nebraska uh, to work for this church plant? Right? It, was, it was a huge transition uh, moment of my life. It was a decision that, that set the course for the rest of my life. Um, Another time that I can remember uh, really similarly wrestling through the same sort of process was when I was dating my now wife, Ashley, and I was trying to figure out, uh, am I going to marry her, right? And so we're, we all find ourselves in these process, and we're, we're waiting on God. We're, we're waiting on wisdom uh, and direction uh, from God. Uh, but also, right, there's something for us to do, right? We have to, we have to seek counsel. Uh, we're in prayer uh, before God. And there's just this tension when we're waiting on God, when we're trying to wa- wait on, on answer and wisdom from God. Like, what, what do I do uh, during this process? I think we all struggle to figure out in those moments, uh, what does that look like for us? And I think our text today is going to shed uh, some light uh, on this issue uh, for us. Uh, We have been looking at the life of Abram together uh, this summer uh, as a church. Uh, Abram is uh, one of the great patriarchs, right? He is uh, the father of the Christian faith. He is one of our great uh, heroes. And yet, as we have already seen throughout our time in in Genesis 12, and we'll go through 12 all the way to 25, uh, we've already seen and we will continue to see uh, that Abraham uh, is far from a hero, Right? He is this normal guy with normal struggles. Right? If you had to pick a theme to summarize Abraham's life, it would be faith versus failure. His life is this constant cycle of the highs of great faith in God and the lows of great failure before God. How Abram is doing just depends on what chapter of the book of Genesis that you're reading, right? If Abraham is, is doing really well, then just flip the page, right? And you'll see a much different picture. And all of us here are, are really no different than Abram. Our lives are filled with moments of great faith and also moments of great failure. It just depends on what chapter of our life someone is looking at. We are a lot like Abram, and for this reason, we have a lot to learn from his life. However, alongside Abram's constantly shifting faith, we have also seen God's constant, unshakable faith to bring about all that God has promised and planned to pass. Sometimes God works out his plan through Abram's obedience and faith, and other times, He accomplishes his purposes in spite of, uh, and sometimes even through uh, Abram's failures. And our story uh, in Genesis 16 today is another example of God doing just that. As we come to uh, chapter 16 today, we are going to see Abram uh, in one of his low moments, and this one uh, is really bad. Uh, We saw just last week in chapter 15 that Abraham believed the Lord 
and God counted it to him as righteousness, right? Abram believed, right? He had faith. Specifically, Abram believed that God would give him uh, a son, even though Abram couldn't see how that was going to come about. Abram believed. And as we come to our story today in chapter 16, this promise uh, of offspring is still very much uh, at the center stage. But in this case, as we're going to see, a lack of faith uh, on Abram's part leads to uh, an epic failure for both Abram uh, and his wife, uh, Sarai. And let me just say this uh, from the get-go. I might use these these words interchangeably, these names, Abram, Sarai, Abraham, Sarah. I'm probably going to mess this up. Uh, In the next chapter, God actually changes their name. Uh, But up until this point, we have seen their names are Abram and Sarai. And so if I go back and forth, just know I'm talking about the same person, okay? Uh, We're going to see what happens uh, here starting uh, in verse 1 of of chapter 16. Uh, But before we do, uh, let me remind you uh, just of some background, just to set up uh, what is happening here in the story. Back in Genesis 11, uh, we found out that Sarai, uh, Abram's wife, uh, is unable uh, to have children. Right? The text says that she is uh, barren. Uh, and then in, in Genesis 12, Adam rece- uh, Abram receives the promise uh, from God that he would become a, a great nation. Right? And then again in, in, in chapter 15, uh, God reiterates his promise, and this time he gets more specific about it. He promises Abram uh, a son. And that's where we pick up uh, in the story. So look on in your Bibles, chapter 16, verse 1. I'm just going to read the first sentence there. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Uh, Ten years have now passed uh, since God first promised to multiply Abram, and nothing uh, has changed, right? Sarai is still unable to have kids. They have been waiting on God for ten years, right? This is becoming a crisis of faith for them, and it's not going to go well. So let's see how they respond. Again, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, this is Hagar, she looks on with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave you my servant uh, to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Look, this is bad, right? This reads like a a soap opera, like an episode of of Jerry Springer, right? Abram has uh, taken another woman as his wife, he has slept with her, he's gotten her pregnant, uh, and then when things blow up, uh, he just disregards, just totally uh, discards, uses uh, this woman. 
right? Abram is supposed to be the man through whom God would bless all families of the earth. That was the original promise, right? This is the great hero of our faith. And here in chapter 16, Abram and Sarai show us what can happen when we walk by our flesh and not by faith. To walk in the flesh just means to live according to your own understandings, according to your own abilities. And so another way to put, that, put this is that Abram and Sarah show us what can happen when we take matters into our own hands. Now, I want us to consider together today two aspects of this story. First, I want us to look at the failure of Abram and Sarai. I want us to see what we can learn from their failure about what it means to take matters into our own hands and how that often leads to sin and destruction in our lives. And then I want us to look together at the faithfulness of God to see how God responds, to see what his faithfulness looks like in the midst of our biggest failures. So, uh, the failure of Abram and Sarai uh, and the faithfulness uh, of God. So let's uh, first look at the failure. Um, and we'll start with looking at things from Sarah's uh, point of view. Uh, look, on the surface, let's not beat around the bush here. Right? This looks really bad uh, for Sarai. Like, what is she thinking here? Like, what, what woman would just freely, of her own accord, give another woman to her husband to sleep with? This seems unexplainable. I think we read the story and it's, it's really easy to, to judge and just write Sarai off here. But I, what I want and hope that you see is that Sarai is really no different than you or I. In any time, in any culture, being a mother is a really significant thing. Right, women? This is, a, this is a really important, significant part of what it means to be a woman. But this is especially true in Sarai's culture. Children were, uh, in this culture, were, con- were considered a woman's capital. Right? They, they were her significance. Right? If she didn't have children, then, then she was a disgrace. Right? She, she felt worthless. She was disregarded by society. And so Sarai's barrenness, this is a complete devastation to her. And on top of, of the normal cultural pressure, she had right, her husband, Abram, who was telling her uh, that God was going to bless the entire world through her offspring, right? God's plans depended uh, on her. And so despair and pain begins to creep in. And after years and years and years, I imagine that Sarai just began to feel backed in a corner. Right? She gets desperate. And we see in verse 2, she says to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, so go into my servant. It, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. Uh, this practice of having children with a servant uh, was really widespread. Right? It, was, it was seen as acceptable in Sarai's culture. Uh, and when you had a, a child with a servant, uh, oftentimes they would, they would sort of adopt that child into their family uh, as one of their own. And so Sarai's just, she's not just making this idea up, right? This is a widely accepted practice uh, at this time. Uh, and I'm not saying that this was uh, acceptable uh, to God. Uh, this story that we find here in Genesis 12, it's not a prescription for morality, right? We're, we're reading a story of what actually happened, 
right? And as God's people, we read it and we learn from it and we're instructed by it. Right? So God, this is not acceptable in God's eyes. But what I'm saying is that no one during this time would have given it a second thought. And so Sarai says to Abram, go, right? sleep with my maidservant Hagar. I can't have children, but perhaps I can build a family through her. Right? Maybe... Maybe you can begin to imagine uh, her thought process here, right? Like she, she's heard about these promises that God was going to bless the world through her. And, and, and mind you, she hasn't heard the promise uh, herself from God. She's heard it through her husband. But, but she's heard this promise, and, and, and she begins thinking now, well, look, maybe, maybe this is God's will. Right? Okay, he's promised us a son. I'm clearly not able to have kids. Nothing seems to be changing in this regard. And so maybe, maybe this is how God wants to do this. Maybe this is God's plan all along. And besides, does God, does he really want me to, to feel this incredible pain and, and, and despair and grief that I'm going through? This is what Sarai is, is, is thinking and feeling, and she begins to feel backed in a corner, and so she just gives in. Right? She resorts to uh, control, manipulation. Perhaps she had good intentions, but look, it, it's still the kind of manipulation that comes from a lack of faith, a lack of trust, a lack of dependence upon God. At the heart of Sarai's failures is taking matters into her own hands. She had removed God from the process. There's no mention of Sarai like talking this out, bringing her concerns and her ideas to God. Instead, she takes matters into her own hands. Now, how do things get to this point? I mean, Abram and Sarah didn't just wake up one day and all of a sudden think, you know what, sleeping with Hagar was a good idea. That's not how it went. But it never happens like that. Failure is usually the result of a, of a slow and continual drift away from God. I want you to think about uh, just your own life uh, for a moment. Now, I think we have all, uh, I know that we have all found ourselves in some sin, right? And in the aftermath, we begin to wonder, like, how did this happen? How did I, how did I get here? None of us wake up and suddenly think, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to manipulate people at work in order to get ahead. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to lower God's standards in order to get what I want. Christians don't just all of a sudden get comfortable with things like sexual immorality or lying or fits of rage. Nobody has said to me uh, that I I was feeling really, really close to God one day. The next day I woke up and I feel totally lost. I feel totally isolated. I feel totally separate from him. Right? The drift away from God uh, is gradual. And if we're not paying attention, we eventually find ourselves rationalizing Hagar as God's plan for our life. So what is it that, uh, what is it that causes this drift? And this is how I, uh, this is how I, I think it, it can work. This is how I sort of see sin at work in us. Sin often comes about, not always, but often comes about from good desires. Right? We have these good desires. Uh, right? I want a baby. I want to feel loved. I want companionship. I want to feel uh, secure. I want to be respected, and so on. 
Right? These, are, these are good desires. But oftentimes, good desires become ultimate desires. Right? Something besides God becomes the aim of our aspirations and our affections. And whatever that thing is, it starts to pull us away from God. Now for Sarai, having a child, right, this was a good desire. But it became for her an ultimate desire. Right? She had the pressure of her, of her culture around her. She had the pressure of her husband. And over time, she began to see a child as something that would legitimize her. And when good desires become ultimate desires, eventually, you will take matters into, into your own hands in order to get what you want. So let me ask you, what desires have become ultimate to you? What do you need in your life in order to feel legitimate? My wife and I bought our first house together a little over a year ago. And ever since then, I have felt this growing desire to make my house nice. Right, to fill it with nice things, to make it a place that, that people like to come to, uh, just a nice house. And, and that's not a bad thing, right? A, a nice house is not a bad thing. Nice, nice things are not a bad thing. To want to have a, a house to bring people over to, to invite them in where they feel comfortable and welcomed, right? to have a nice house to come home to and, and feel comfortable, to enjoy the beauty around you, to enjoy the beauties that a, that a nice house affords, that's not a, a bad thing. But over the past year, I, I felt the drift right, to make that an ultimate desire. You see, desires that go unchecked become ultimate desires. And eventually they will lead us into a, a slow and continual drift away from God. And they will just hold us there. And if we are to get out of the, the chains of what our culture says will, will make or break us, out of the chains of, of self-reliance, of, of taking matters into our own hands, out of the, the chains of, of security, right, through work, our looks, our reputations, our success, our kids' success, materialism, comfort, right, all of that has to become nothing to us compared with the beauty and the blessing of God. We have to turn our eyes off of the blessings of the world and onto the blesser. Because if your faith is more focused on the blessings of God, then you can be certain that failure is close behind. Uh, I have a, a daughter, a Ruby. Uh, she will be two years old in just a, a few weeks. And uh, she's a toddler, so she is a hot mess. Uh, but she is, just, she is beautiful and she is so much fun. Uh, I just love that girl. She's a toddler, and, and like all toddlers, uh, they're just a perfect example of this making desires ultimate desires, right? Anything that they're feeling in the moment is an ultimate desire to them, right? And it changes every 30 seconds, right? They're a perfect picture uh, of this, and this is definitely true of my daughter. And you can, you can see it uh, on her face. Uh, you can hear it in her, in her screams, right? She's controlled uh, by her desires, but what I also know about my girl is, man, she loves her daddy. She loves her dad more than anything. I can't leave the room without, like, 30 seconds without her wondering where I went, right? She's always got her eyes on me. It's, it's tiring, right? But, but it's also funny. Like, I, I leave the room, and a half second later, so where'd daddy go? Where'd daddy go? 
Right, when I come home from work, she runs to the door. Right, as soon as it opens, she said, daddy home, daddy home. She runs, she's got a big smile on her face. She just wants to hang out with dad. She wants to be with dad. She wants her eyes on dad. I experienced this yesterday. I was officiating a wedding for, for two of our members here at Providence. And man, it just m- makes me so joyful. And she was a, a flower girl in the wedding. It's an emotional week for all of us, isn't it? And she was a, a flower girl in this wedding. And, um, and so, you know, she had the flower, uh, the flower girl duties. She had this big sunflower that she had to walk down the aisle with. Uh, and uh, she's, my wife's behind her, and she starts making her way down, down the aisle. And I'm just thinking, this is going to be a disaster, right? She has the attention span of like a half second. And so she, uh, she starts down the aisle, and she's going good, and then she looks up, and I'm, I'm officiating this wedding, and so she just sees me down the aisle. She gets this sort of grin on her face. She turns, and she hands the flower to my, to my wife, and she just lets out in a sprint down the aisle. Those of you that were there can attest. She just let out in a sprint. She gets down to the end, and I just scooped her up. Right? She loves her dad more than anything. Guys, we have a a heavenly father who loves us far better and far more than any earthly father could. And our greatest blessing in life is to be with him, to have our eyes on him, to be in his presence. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, this situation uh, doesn't look any better from Abram's perspective. Right? It's It's eerily similar to the scene of Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, Like Eve, uh, Sarai wasn't satisfied with what God had given her. And so she, uh, she took Hagar and she gave her to her husband, just like Eve did with the fruit. And like Adam before him, Abram listened to the voice of his wife and he took Hagar. Abram was supposed to be the one that was leading Sarai. He is the one who has heard clearly from God uh, and and his revealed promises. Uh, But instead, Abram goes right right along with things. He's not offering up a single word uh, or objection or even just the slightest like pause, like maybe we should stop and sort of hear from God on this thing. He just goes right along with it. And he takes Hagar as his wife, he sleeps with her, he gets her pregnant. And then when tensions arise, obviously, between Hagar and Sarai, he just wants nothing to do with it. Right? He says, look, she's your slave. You can do what you want. It's not my problem. And, and so Sarai takes Hagar, and, and the text says that she dealt harshly with her. Right? This is the exact same word that we see in the book of Exodus for how the Egyptians treated the Israelite slaves when they weren't making bricks fast enough. Right? They abused them. Sarai abuses Hagar, most likely, she beats her. Whatever the case, uh, uh, Hagar is scared for her life, and so she she flees into the desert, which was a completely helpless situation. This was committing suicide, but she can't take it anymore, right? She, She flees into the desert. And where is Abram? Like, Hagar is now his wife. She's carrying his child, and he just stands by. He does nothing. Abram is supposed to be the man who protects her, who provides for her, 
that God's call on Abram's life was to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. But instead of blessing Hagar, he curses her. He says, she's your slave. Do with her what you want, not my problem. It's hard to know Abram's thoughts and motivations uh, that that he's experiencing here. But whatever they were, his failure is also a result of taking matters into his own hands. It looks a little bit different than Sarai. His comes through willful passivity, but he does it nonetheless. He doesn't seek after God. He just sits back and just goes along with it. And and this is another way that we drift from God, through willful passivity. We quit seeking after God, and we we sit back and we go along with life. We don't question things. We don't seek counsel. We just just go along with it. It's willful passivity. It's sinful, and as we see in the case of Abram, it's devastatingly destructive. This looks like the person who sort of just stumbles their way in to sexual immorality, right? Lust, sleeping with someone who's not your wife or your husband, pornography. You're probably not actively seeking those things out when it first starts, But when when you quit seeking after God in the actual circumstances of your life, when sin comes along, you just sort of go along with it. You don't ask questions, you just indulge. This looks like the person who is addicted to excess. It could come in many different forms. Consumerism, comfort, food, keeping up with appearances, whatever it is. We're all bent towards excess in something. Excess is a way of of filling up something that is lacking within us. And what happens is you just don't think too much about it. You just, you go along with it. And over time, excess becomes completely normal. And and what happens is, is, is crazy in our heads. You actually start to feel entitled to it, don't you? It's interesting to note, I think, in all of these examples, uh, that we're often passive about things that are culturally acceptable. This is the case for Abram and Sarah as well. Right? Lust, pornography, consumerism, all of those completely acceptable in our culture. And maybe we aren't so different right, than Abram and Sarah. Uh, because of sin, because of the fallen world that we live in, our default will always be to drift away from God. And and so if you want to walk by faith, then you have to cultivate an an active faith and love for God. We are made to fill ourselves, to feast in excess on God himself. See, so sin is overcome uh, through seeking after God, through feasting uh, on him. That's what we see absent from Abram here. If your faith is not active, then again, you can be certain that failure is close behind. I want to say something briefly here about the consequences of Abram and Sarai's failures and sin. There's a worthy saying about sin that goes, sin will always take you farther than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. And man, that is true in this story. Sin has devastating consequences, which is exactly what we see uh, in this story. 
In many ways, Abram and Sarai are still experiencing the consequences of Abram's poor choices when he was in Egypt. And there's this ironic reversal here. Did you notice it? Remember back in chapter 12, Abram had given Sarai over to the Egyptian pharaoh as a wife. And now here in chapter 16, Sarai gives Abram over to her Egyptian servant. We probably shouldn't be so surprised about Sarai's actions. I mean, where does she get this? Abram. His unbelief and sin has so shaped and formed his wife. It has reaped terrible consequences on her. Uh, And Hagar herself. She she was a servant that Abram had picked up from his immoral prophet while he was in Egypt. Uh, He he got Hagar from uh, Pharaoh in Egypt while he was there. Uh, And here, uh, in chapter 16, uh, here Hagar is attached to more sin and consequences for Abram. It's possible, if not likely, uh, that if Abram had walked by faith and avoided the whole situation in Egypt, then he wouldn't be in this current mess. His sin and unbelief has reaped destruction, not just on him, but all those around him. He has violated his wife. He has pulled his wife into his sin. He has destroyed the life of this servant girl by taking her away from her home in Egypt and now just using and discarding her. And this is what sin does. It uses and discards people, leaving a wake of destruction. We've experienced that this week. God is unmistakably unwavering in his faithfulness to Abraham. However, God's faithfulness does not ignore the consequences of sin. After this situation with Hagar, Abram goes 13 years before God restores and builds him back up. 13 years. Sin will always take you farther than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you were willing to give up. Abram's life is a testament to both the the faithfulness of God, but also to the very real consequences of sin. And so do do you see yourself in Abram and Sarai? Do you see their lack of faith present in your own life? If you do, I want to plead with you to consider the consequences of your sin. Don't don't minimize them. Become familiar with, with the depth of your sin. Grieve the evil that is in your own heart and bring your failure to God. Seek after him and take comfort in the fact that Jesus came to save not the righteous, but sinners like me and like you. Now, the story uh, doesn't end here. Uh, We have seen the actions of uh, Abram and Sarai, and up until this point, God has been notably uh, absent uh, from our story. Uh, But we will see how God uh, responds uh, to these failures. Let's pick up uh, in verse 6. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. 
And the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Berlaharoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And God chases down Hagar, and he finds her by a spring of water in the wilderness. Four times in those verses it refers to the angel of the Lord. Oftentimes in Scripture, uh, we, we see the term an angel of the Lord, but here it says the angel of the Lord. Most commentators uh, I read believe that this refers to an appearance of the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, This phrase happens more than once in the Old Testament. And so here in Genesis 16, it's Jesus himself who appears and comes to Hagar. And just like with the Samaritan woman in John 4, the Lord comes to this woman by the water, this woman who was an outcast, who was looked down upon, who was discarded, and he sees her. He values her. He speaks into her situation. He cares. He comforts her. He provides for her. He blesses her. God is the only one who sees her. God is the only one who has regard for her. Commentator Bruce Walk, he says that this is the only known example in all ancient literature, in all religion, where a deity speaks a woman's name directly to her. Isn't that amazing? Uh, Abram uh, and Sarai just referred to her as maidservant. Did you see that? But God calls her by name. Uh, Hagar has been greatly sinned against and then held responsible for that sin. She's been used and abused and discarded. She has been left for dead. And in the midst of her helplessness, the Lord comes after her. He calls her by name. He rescues her. He restores her. He blesses her. God's response to Hagar shows us what happens when his faithfulness, when his mercy and grace come to the lowly, to the oppressed, to those who have been wronged, who have been written off. God hurts with those who are hurting. He is with those who have been sinned against. He provides for those who have been persecuted. He comes for those who have been cut off. He runs after and near to those who have been abused and discarded. This story teaches us that God is not just for Abram. He is for Hagar. God's faithfulness is towards the helpless. God condescends to those who have no hope. The events that have happened uh, in our country and and in our state uh, this week are beyond words. Just devastating. Uh, The complexity of of personal sin uh, and social brokenness is, is heartbreaking and confusing So many have been wrongfully hurt and killed, and I struggle to even know what to say at all. But I take great comfort from this text, that the same God who heard the cry of Hagar hears the cry of everyone who is hurting today. He grieves over what has taken place. 
and he offers comfort and hope. And God knows what it is to suffer, to be wrongfully murdered. And Jesus was falsely accused. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was put to a humiliating death on a cross. As the prophet Isaiah said, he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And one of the most astounding moments to me is when Jesus is is hanging on the cross and he's crying out to God, his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's no answer. God is silent. God does not come near to his son in that moment. It's agonizing. In that moment, Jesus is taking our place. Because of our sin, we deserve to be separated from God. We we deserve a, a deaf ear. We deserve the wrath of God. But Jesus takes the wrath that we deserve upon himself so that we might come to God. Peter says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Now, on the cross, God did not see or hear Jesus in his suffering so that he could see and hear us in ours. God did not come near his beloved son in his moment of greatest need so that he might come near to us in our need. The cross of Christ is the ultimate proof and security of God's unwavering faithfulness. Uh, Psalm 36 says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, uh, is unending. It extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. God's faithfulness knows no bounds. If you are hurting and suffering, if you have been wronged, discarded, take hope in the promise that God sees you. God hears your cry and he has acted on your behalf. But what about Abram and Sarai? How does God respond to them? And we have to jump ahead to uh, chapter 17 in order to see that. Uh, Hagar gives birth to Ishmael there at the end of, of chapter 16, and then uh, 13 years pass. Right? Again, this, this is a detail that, that we're not meant to miss. We're, we're meant to see what's going on here. The, the whole narrative of Abram's life is marked by God's appearing to him and speaking to him. But here between chapter 16, what happens with, with Hagar, and, and chapter 17, there's, there's 13 years of silence. Right? We're meant to feel the weight of the consequences of Abram's sin. Because then we can feel the magnitude of God's faithfulness towards him. Look at uh, chapter 17, just the first few verses. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, My covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. God's mercy and his faithfulness are unwavering. God says to Abram, my covenant is from everlasting to everlasting. I have not removed my love and my promises from you. 
And then this just, this blows my mind, right? Abram's sin has to do with this promise of a child, right? And this is the very thing that God emphasizes when he comes to restore him. He says, you shall be a father. Right? God's love is just relentless towards us. And under the weight of God's love and mercy, Abram simply falls on his face. Right? Abram's failure has given way to God's faithfulness. Now, the gospel, as seen through Abram, is that in our greatest failure, God is faithful. That is good news. It's the best news. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.